Hi, I'm Joaquin Evans, co-senior leader of Bethel Austin. I pray that Jesus ministers to you through today's message and that you are blessed deeply. If you're encouraged, please like and subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our weekly sermons. Enjoy the message. I don't know about preaching after that message. I have to, I think it helps me to confess my intimidation and the fact that I've, I have a comparative, comparative spirit and uh, that I'm like a grasshopper that uh, John the Baptist ate. Was, that last line was profound. That was, whole thing was profound, but I mean the last line was like climax of the whole teaching. It was so good. So, wow. I think, Brian, have you been to our church a couple times? But I don't think, and you, did you teach both once? Yeah, I never was, I wasn't there when you taught either time. So, um, so the last, first time I've actually heard Brian teach was about a month ago when we did a conference together. and I had to follow him again. That was not fun. <laughs> You know what I mean? When, you, when your education is, what's, you know, what's the matter you? <laughs> so I graduated from what's the matter you. It's an Italian college. <laughs> I graduated with a degree in hammerology. So, and then you follow like a Bible scholar who's like writing his own Bible. <laughs> so, that's <laughs> pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty crazy. Yeah. I used to be intimidated when Bill was in the front row, but that was the low level. That was, that was grasshopper intimidation. It's a whole nother level right here. Hey, what time am I supposed to be done this session? 12. We got to get a clock somewhere because preachers, we preach the eternal gospel. We just wear a watch to see if the date changed. Um, I give away a, a few books. This is called uh, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth, Moving from a Life of, uh, of Lack into a Kingdom Abundance. And uh, this is really a good book. It, it, it you know, I, I'm tempted to be funny the whole time, but um, I think this brings balance to the prosperity gospel. Because how many know you, Jesus said, no one has ever left family, and he goes through this whole long list without receiving more in this life and in the one to come. And so someone wrote me the other day, I just posted that scripture, and they said, well, how about this verse that says, you know, uh, talks about where you lay up your wealth, and it's like, it's okay to have money as long as it doesn't become your heavenly wealth, right? And if you don't like, you know, if, if you don't, this book is all thrashed. If you don't like, um, if you don't like prosperity, you're not like you're not gonna like heaven. Yep. <laughs> it's like gold streets and pearl gates. You know, you know what I'm saying. So some people are like, you're preaching the prosperity gospel. Well, I'm not preaching the poverty gospel. It's funny, all the people that don't like the prosperity gospel are all trying to figure out how to get people to pay off their own. <laughs> anyway. Have you, heard, have you ever heard anybody say, you say, what do you do for a living? And they say, I, I live by faith. That means that they live off the people who actually have a job. <laughs> anyway, that was supposed to be funny, but. Would anybody like this? Look right here. Okay, here you go. My wife, my wife just wrote this book, the, God, the Good, the God, and the Ugly, The Inside Story of a Supernatural Family, which is ours. And uh, I, I edit this book. I, I, was, I was just telling the, the team, I edit this book. And it's basically stories from our life because people are always asking her, like, what, what, are your, what is your side of the story? So I'm editing her manuscript and I'm like, that's not the way that happened. And she's like, yes, it is. And so I'm like, well, I told that story very differently. So <laughs> anyway, this is uh, stories and things that she learned from our life and, and lessons. Uh, it's actually a really good book. Um, who would like this book? Awesome. Okay, somebody, come get it. There you go. Sheesh. And uh, this book is called Spiritual Intelligence, The Art of Thinking Like God. And uh, this is the, my latest book that I just finished. 
Well, I actually finished it about a year and a half ago. It just came out like last year. Yeah, there you go. You are a woman. You are powerful. Cool. I won't say anything else about this. Let's, let's uh, pray and um, just get going. I'm sorry. What time am I supposed to be done? Noon. Okay, I can figure that out. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And thank you for, huh? Ten afternoon. Ten afternoon. Okay, sundown. <laughs> thank you, Lord, that we eat grasshoppers for breakfast, locusts. Lord, we just bless what you're doing here today. And we pray that you'd open our minds and open our hearts and open our spirits. And Lord, just encourage us, but prepare us for the wonderful days ahead. Amen. Um, I want to kind of do a, a little bit of part two from last night. I have a title for this message, The Reformers Are Coming. Mm. And I, I want to talk about a little bit about having a vision, having a vision. Um, in Proverbs, this is a, the Passion Translation. <laughs> Proverbs 24.3. Decided I'd pull something to create some sort of a bridge between <laughs> me and the smart man. Uh, I actually love this. Uh, I actually pulled this quote about three or four months ago. These notes are from a few months ago. Wise people are builders. They build families, businesses, and communities. And through intelligence and insight, their enterprises are established and endure. Because of their skilled leadership, the hearts of people are filled with treasures of wisdom and the pleasures of spiritual wealth. Is that amazing? That's Proverbs 24, 3 and 4. Um, I had an experience, I've shared it many times, and it's in at least one of my books, but uh, I think it's a good way to kind of open this session and kind of tell you why I started thinking like this. Uh, many years ago, we have a prayer chapel, a 24-hour prayer chapel, which uh, I rarely pray in there anymore because people, I'm laying on the floor, and they're like, can you sign my book? And even though there's a big sign like, leave people alone, they just don't read English or something. So, but I used to pray in there all the time, and, uh, or several times a week at least. And one, uh, this is probably, I think this would probably be about 20 years ago. I was laying on the floor in the prayer chapel just doing, just praying, just doing what I do. And I had this experience where I was thrust 100 years into the future. And you're like, how do you know you're 100 years in the future? This is the weird thing about prophetic stuff, right? Like, you just know. I knew I was 100 years in the future. And, uh, and I was in this mansion or palace, uh, like this in beautiful, I was inside. So it was like this big, huge house, palace, mansion, castle. I don't know, it was this beautiful, ornate castle, palace. And I was in the front room, and there, was a, and, and there was a fireplace right in front, and it probably went a little higher than the ceiling here, this rock fireplace that went all the way to the ceiling. And there was an old man standing right next to me. And in the vision, I could see him perfectly, but he could not see me. And it was like, um, it was like a family reunion, maybe Thanksgiving or something. There was like, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 people all gathered like we do, in, you know, most of us do in, at Thanksgiving. And everybody was talking, women in the kitchen, men in the front room, little kids running around. And the old man had uh, gathered a few children, and he was doing what old men do. He was musing. He was like telling stories the way it was. And they were half paying attention and more playing. And, and then all of a sudden, the old man's voice began to change. And he started to, he started to look out as if he was looking into eternity. And, as he, and he began to talk with a tone that said, this is imminent, this is important. And as he did, the children got quiet, and the women and the, and the men and the, and the teenagers, everybody gathered around the old man. And he began to tell them about their noble, royal history. And he began to recount stories about their, about their nobility, about their royalty, 
about their wealth. And as he did, you could hear a pin drop in the front room as the old man recounted story after story after story of how they had come as a family into this royal, noble lineage. And after several minutes, he went like this, and he said, and all of this, and all of this, he said with his hand, and all of this began, and he pointed to the fireplace. And over the fireplace, there was this beautiful painted portrait of my wife and I. And he said, all of this began with your great, great, great grandmother and grandfather. And when he finished saying that, I was instantly back on the floor in the prayer house. And the Lord said to me, quit your ministry and build a legacy. From this day on, you will live for a people yet to be born. And I got off the floor, and I was, you know, I grew up in poverty. We lived paycheck to paycheck. I never heard the word vision in my family. I never heard anyone mention a vision. I never heard anyone talking about planning the future. We were a people who lived from paycheck to paycheck, and we complained about the wealthy people. We didn't trust wealthy people. We didn't trust people who had power. We made up stories and watched media articles about people who built for the future. They were suspect. They were criminals. There were reasons why they were rich and we were poor. They were the, they were the evil people and we were the ones fighting to make life happen against the wealthy people who had everything happening for themselves. And then suddenly, in a moment's time, I felt like the Lord delivered me from the spirit of poverty. And he began to talk to me about building a legacy, living for your great, 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 great grandchildren, living for a generation that you would never meet on this side of the veil. I began to think about I got off the floor, and we were, this was very, we had lost our business two years before. We were, we didn't go bankrupt. The Lord told us we couldn't bankrupt. We owed $1.8 million. I'll tell you, my salary was $1,000 a month. Kathy's salary was 1000 a month, so we made $2,000 a month. We owed $1.8 million. We went to see our, the board, the church board, when this all went down. We were, only, we were only three months at Bethel when we lost everything. It's a long story, but we sold all of our businesses to a large uh, uh, half a billion dollar company. We were at Bethel for, the escrow hadn't yet to close. They kept stalling the escrow. We got to Bethel, we were there, I think two months actually, and we called one day. It was our, we had auto parts stores. It was our supplier who bought us the second largest uh, auto parts uh, aftermarket supplier in the world. And one day, our men called the warehouse to get a part from them, and the number was disconnected, and that's how we found out. And with, a few months later, we found, out that we, were, we found out that they weren't bankrupt and basically took us with them because they didn't pay us for the businesses that they took from us. And we ended up owing $1.8 million. Instead of having a quarter of a million dollars to live on, we had a $1.8 million debt, and we were living on 2000 a month. And that's the condition of when I'm laying on the floor. And then we went to our elders and told them we were going to bankrupt. And they said, please, don't bankrupt for six months. Please trust God. <laughs> and I remember, like it was yesterday, I said, I have no faith for that. And a man that was 75 years old said, would you trust mine? He said, would you trust my faith for six months? And if God doesn't come through in six months, then you can bankrupt. But would you trust my faith that God's going to pay off all your bills? And, I, and I, I just said, well, six months. I'll give, I'll give God six months. I really meant that. I had no faith for it. You know, we owed 127 suppliers. They were calling, you can imagine. They were calling us every day. 
And so I'm like, well, I, don't, I can't do that forever. But it, what happened was within a month, we got forgiven 900,000 of it. And by the end of three years, it all had been paid off or forgiven. We had no debt by the third year. We'd never live with no debt. But anyway, so I just want you to know, like, that was the condition. So I'm laying on the floor. I'm laying there, and I'm thinking, all right, like, you know, you know uh, uh, Bill, I've been with Bill 43 years. I'm the practical guy, like, okay, I, I, I'm, when Bill's preaching, I am... I'm in this mode every time. What does that look like? Because Bill's like the Holy Spirit philosopher. And I'm like, great idea. What does it look like? We should save cities. Awesome. What does it look like? So I'm laying on the floor and I'm thinking in the prayer chapel, wow, what does that look like? Like, I don't even know how wealthy people think. I don't even, I've never... I, don't even, I, 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 you know, there's people that come to Bethel who are wealthy, but I don't have, I don't have friends who are wealthy. And I got up off the floor and I, I, I went immediately to see Kathy and I said, man, I had this, of course, I was in tears, had this crazy experience. And at the time, we had six grandkids. We have almost, we have, we'll have a 12th grandkid here real soon. And I have a great grandson. But we had six grandkids at the time, and I said to Kathy, I feel like we're supposed to do something like an act of faith to just begin to sow into our grandkids. And again, we have no money. So she's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. Why don't we put $50? Why don't we open six accounts, trust, trust accounts, and let's, in their names, and let's put $50 a month in there. I mean, you have to understand that was like putting $500. But actually, for right now, it'd be like me putting $2,000 a month in each kid's account. We had no money. So we just did it by faith. And as we had more grandkids, we just opened another account and we just did it by faith. And we just began to sow into the generation we can see so we could sow into a generation we can't see. Like, it's kind of hard to sow into a generation you can't see if you're not sown into a generation you can't see. And we just began to... Think like, okay, how do we build a legacy? It was nothing. It was a, a few little seeds. And, and by the way, out of that account, it's been kind of fun. Um, now, uh, I think, um, let's see if I count right, seven of our grandkids are um, in their very late teens or early 20s. So, so, so far, we've bought seven cars from that money. So we buy them all their first car. There's not a ton of money in there, but there's enough. And so... I just bought uh, Evan, he's 17, and, and so they all know that, they're, that we buy their first car, so when he turned 17, and he said, I'm getting my license next month, and I said, well, let's go buy a car, so him and I, I surprised him, actually, and I told Kathy, let's buy him a brand new car, because cars are, used cars are so expensive right now. It was kind of fun, it was, it was $23,000 for a brand new car, 23, like that, that was with tax. And so he, 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 he was sending me these things of what he wanted, which are like Toyota Corollas. I'm like, I'm glad the boy thinks. <laughs> you know, he's not sending like Mercedes or Ferraris. I'm like, he's like, this is what I really want. And see if we can find a used one. So anyway, I bought a brand new one and I had it delivered to his house. And I was there when it came. So the salesman, so we get there, we're in the house, we're in, at his house and the salesman pulls up. And, uh, and I said... Uh, I said, come on out here. So we came out and threw him the keys. That's your new car. Oh, he cried. It was so fun. It was just so fun. And, and then some of the other kids were like, how come you didn't buy me a new car? I'm like, that was seven years ago. I didn't have the money to buy you a new car. Just Actually, that, none of them were like that. They were just so excited for Evan. And it's, it's just, uh, it just the excitement of like, wow, just saving for a generation. And now we're like, okay, let's put some more money in there. Let's... Let's work on their first house. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could help them buy, not buy it for them, but help them buy their first house. And just exciting. And I, you know, I, I've been in business for so many years. And actually, I oversee the business of Bethel, which is about $70 million. So I actually am more in business now than I was when I was in business. And it's really a lot of fun using other people's money. <laughs> so I, I love business. And in the 80s, um, the, um, you know, you, you would probably know this if you're anywhere 
close to being born then, but <laughs> alive. You know, I was in the automotive business, so, you know, the, uh, the Japanese built terrible cars in the 60s and 70s, terrible cars. Like, they were terrible cars. Nobody really wanted them. But in the 80s, in the early 80s, they began to build the best quality cars that you could import into America. By far, Consumer Reports were just raving over their quality. And so, and the big three, you know, General Motors, Ford, and, and, um, and Dodge, or Chrysler, they, they, comparatively speaking, their cars were just junk. Their quality was so bad in comparison to the Japanese. Probably they were forever, but the Japanese building such great cars, you know, basically they, there was some, you could buy something in quality. And so the story goes, and, and so I'm sorry, I wish I would have cut this article out. It was in Inc. Magazine, I believe, years and years and years ago in the early 90s. Um, there, so the, the Japanese put on a, the Japanese car manufacturers put on a conference in a manufacturer's conference in Japan and I think it was the CEO of General Motors got sent to this conference by the board of General Motors and said, go to this conference and figure out what the Japanese are doing. This is before there was partnerships with the Japanese. And so he went to the conference, and the very first day, the first presenter, I think, was Nissan, if I remember correctly. And this is all by memory because I cannot find the article. But the, so he, the, the, the uh, CEO, I think it was of Nissan, came up, and on the whiteboard, he wrote, here's our 100-year vision. <laughs> After the session, this is the very first session, the CEO of General Motors got in a jet and flew home. And the board, the board said to him, what are you doing home? I thought this was like a five-day conference. And he said, well, there's no way we can compete with the Japanese. They're building a legacy, and we're building cars. They're building a legacy, and we're just building cars. And I, I want to tell you that I feel like, um, let's see how I can explain this. I grew up. I got saved in the Jesus culture, in the Jesus movement. And the Jesus movement, I, listen, I am so loved the Jesus movement. I, you know, I got saved with the hippies. I wasn't a hippie. I've never touched drugs or I never drank alcohol. And, uh, and, but I got saved with the hippies, with the long-haired hippies who came out of Haight-Ashbury, to be totally honest. And they were, they, they were having visions of Jesus on LSD, and Jesus was himself leading them to the Lord. It was a beautiful time of these people who everyone said no one could reach these people. It'd be like the LG, in my mind, uh, it's probably offensive to some, but it'd be like the LGBT community having a Saul turn to Paul and suddenly calling everyone to repentance. And these, these people were on fire for God. They, they didn't really know the Bible, unfortunately. Like their prophecies were often like, Definitely need to read the Bible. <laughs> Their preaching was heretical. But they were on fire and they loved God. And, um, and they came into a church called Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Many of them. This is like Chuck Smith. There's a wonderful story about Chuck. I, I don't know how much time I should take for all this. But there's a wonderful story about Chuck Smith because... Chuck Smith had a very, uh, a very, uh, semi-charismatic but very conservative church. People wore suit and ties to the church. That was his style. And um, and then the, and then um, a young man named Lonnie Frisbee got saved at, in Haight Ashbury, and he started reaching all these hippies. And pretty soon, uh, just he, and then he ends up at Calvary Chapel where they do, ex, uh, uh, what do you call the uh, Bible teaching where you go straight for the Bible? Expositional teaching, right, from the Bible. And then the, this, this church, this organized Bible teaching church ends up with Lonnie Frisbee, who, with, who got saved through an LSD trip, and Jesus himself led him to the Lord. It blew up his church, and so there was about 300 people at Calvary Chapel. By the end of the year, there was estimates say 3,000 people gathering. There was this famous meeting where 
the, because the hippies are coming, they smell, they don't, they, they don't have hygiene, good hygiene, they're not wearing shoes. It, it's like, and, and remember, where they're coming into this suit and tie culture of tradition, as you can imagine, was like they were being invaded by the John the Baptist people. <laughs> eating locusts and wearing camel's hair, metaphorically speaking. And there was this great famous board meeting where the board is, is angry because of the condition of their congregation suddenly. And they, and they say to Chuck, you know, these hippies, they are ruining our carpet. <laughs> you know, they're, they're all barefoot without any hygiene. And, uh, and they're going on and on about what the hippies are doing and how they smell and how they're ruining the carpet. And Chuck Smith stands up, slams his hands on the desk, uh, this large desk table, slams his hands and, and says, then rip out the carpet. Yeah. And, and stands up and walks out of the meeting. Then rip out the carpet, he said. And then he begins to baptize them. They couldn't baptize them in the tank for some obvious reasons. How many there were, how bad they smelled. So they started baptizing them at the ocean, in the ocean. It was a beautiful time. And out of that movement came a book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And we all read it. And there wasn't, it wasn't just a book. It was a, it was a teaching series. It was on cassette. We all listened to uh, There was probably lots of them. I listened to a six cassette tape series that was passed around among all of us. And uh, I'll give you one of the, I don't remember the title, I, uh, but I think the title was um, How to Not Take the Mark of the Beast. And we were taught that Jesus was going to come anytime, like any moment. Now, I was 18 when I received Christ, so I was in line for college when I got saved. But I was told that Jesus is gonna come back any moment. So, in fact, there was th four different dates in that book. Every time they reprinted the book, they changed the date when Jesus was going to return. <laughs> not kidding you. Brian could tell you, right? Brian, this is all true what I'm saying. And, 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 and what happened is we went from the kingdom is at hand to the end of the world is near. Right. And the, 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 the verse that was the motto for our generation was come out and be separate. Now, you have to understand I think in light of the people who were getting saved, these people who were coming out of, the, these were street people, probably that was a great message for them, but it became our motto. Come out and be separate. And we, didn't, we weren't told on earth as it is in heaven. We were told, get out of culture, that, that my kingdom is not of this world. These were all verses that we were, that we, I wasn't preaching, I was a kid. These are the verses that were preached to us, that we were not to be a part of culture, that we were to come out and be separate from culture, that the culture was evil and that the, the, the world was gonna get darker and darker in the last days, and we were in the last days, and the church was gonna get brighter and brighter. And we went to meetings constantly. And, uh, and, um, and so we, we didn't teach the, we didn't preach the kingdom we preach, the, we preach the gospel of salvation, not the gospel of the kingdom. And you can look at what happened in history when we exited. You know, so think about it. Jesus' movement started around 1968-69. It was in full-fledged you know, bloom in the early 70s when Roe versus Wade passed. The, the sexual revolution was in... It was at the height of the sexual revolution when people were like, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. That meant screw anybody. Like, there's no morals. This is, this is all, and, and there was no pushback from us because we had exited culture. You think about all of the inventions and innovation that were happening with Steve Jobs, with, with um, Bill Gates, with uh, Michael Dell, with um, uh, Bill Joy, who was the inventor of the internet. All of these, you'll, you'll notice that none of these people are Christians. At least they weren't then. I was born in 1955. Steve Jobs was born in November of 1954. Steve, uh, Michael Dell was born in 1955. Um, uh, Bill Gates was born in 1955. You see a, a common date? These guys were all, uh, at, they were all my age, and we, Christians were exiting culture 
and they were building for the future. There was a reason why we, there was a reason why we weren't in, that Christians were, were barely involved, rarely involved in, in, the, in the information age because we didn't have any foresight because all we had is upside. We were leaving. We were leaving. We weren't influencing how the foundations of the information age happen. There was no morality in the information age because believers had already exited. This is the result. What you're seeing in culture is the result of 50 years of us leaving culture. And I'm going to tell you why we left culture. There's one simple phrase why we left culture. Because our eschatology sucked. We weren't involved in ecology. Remember the very first command to man? Be fruitful, multiply, and cultivate the earth. Like the first command to man, second command to man, first command was be fruitful, multiply, have sex, get married. And the opposite though, get married, have sex. We should be the ones teaching about sex. Like, it was first given to us. The second command, take care of the earth. Do you notice that almost all the people who are deeply involved in all the, the issues of ecology are new age people who believe that trees have spirits? It's because we exited. We exited all of those things. We, we, we relegated the earth to the sons of men, not the sons of God. It was because we had no vision for the future because we were told there wouldn't be a future. What you believe about the end has everything to do with how you behave in the middle. Eschatology is incredibly important. Listen, you don't have to know the book of Revelation, but you should know your God, that he has a plan, he has... He has a plan that includes a future and a hope. Okay. My point. I want to show you just a few verses that no one ever pointed out to me 50 years ago. Turn to Isaiah 2, verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days. When is it going to come about? In the last days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. And people, and it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Okay, when's this gonna happen? In the last days. And many peoples will come and they will say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us concerning his ways, we will walk in his paths. For the, for the instruction will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Listen to this. He will judge between nations. He will render decisions between many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. When is that in the last days? Do you know that that last verse, they will, uh, this part, he will judge between many nations, he will uh, render decisions between many people. They will uh, hammer their swords into plowshares. Do you know that that verse is on a huge like 16 by 8 plaque across the street from the United Nations. That is the United Nations motto. Did you know that? That never again would they train for war. A verse out of the Bible about the last days is on a plaque on the, other, on the cross the street from the United Nations on purpose. Never again will they train for war. Now, if you are like me and you found a verse like that, it's not a problem in the Jesus movement because we just pushed that to the millennium. So we just created a place called the millennium. Why is that important? Because we needed a place to put verses that were good about the last days and didn't apply to you. So all the verses that were terrible, nation will rise up against nation, people against people, there'll be famine and famine, all of that, that's about you. But the good verses that say things about the last days, that isn't for you. Don't get your hopes up. That's for a people that'll live in a thousand year reign and it won't be you. 
So we had to figure out some way to not get your hopes up because we believed in an immediate rapture that was gonna take us out and then there was gonna be seven bad years. Isn't it funny? We spent 50 years preparing for seven bad years. <laughs> 50 years preparing for seven bad years. Okay, let me, and, and I, I think that Brian has a different take on this, which is beautiful. I'd love to hear it because I, I heard some of what he was sharing about Joel. But let me, let me just share a little bit of the scripture, what the scripture says about this, and I would love to hear Brian's take on it. But turn to Joel chapter three, verse nine. Proclaim among the nations, prepare a war. Oh, wait, let me take you back. I'm sorry. Look at Joel chapter two, verse 28. I think you quote some of this. It will come about after this that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Anybody recognize that verse? Yeah. Acts chapter two, verse 17. In the last days. So he says, so Joel says, it will come about after this time. But when Peter repeats it, he, said, he repeats it like this. In the last days it shall come about that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. Are you with me? So, so Peter takes Joel two and says this what is the time of this? Joel said, it shall come about, but Peter said, it shall come about in the last days. So Peter takes Joel 2 and goes, this is about the last days. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, listen to the rest of it. I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, your males, uh, it goes on like that, right? So Joel 3, verse 9, remember, there was no chapter breaks when this was written. A proclaim among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Did you, did you hear that? Yes. Isaiah said, beat your spears into pruning hooks. Joel said, beat your pruning hooks into spears. It's the same quote reversed. Joel said, Isaiah said, and never again will it train for war. And Joel says, prepare for war. <laughs> take the things that were made for farming and turn them into weapons. And Isaiah says, take the things that were made for weapons and turn them into farm tools. <laughs> and they both say, in the last days. <laughs> I don't know if you got this. There is verse after verse like this. In the last days, it's going to be terrible. In the last days, it's going to be amazing. I mean, is there alternative ends to the movie? Okay. Listen to this. Listen, listen to the, uh, uh, verse 14 of this same thing. Well, I'll, maybe I should read the whole thing. Proclaim among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Beat your, beat your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. Bring down, O Lord, the mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in a sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Did you notice? It polar opposite of what Isaiah said. And they both said, it's gonna happen in the last days. Are you with me? Do you know, um, there was a tabernacle in the Old Covenant that I think Joaquin uh, referenced sometime, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies, which basically three compartments, in summary. The outer court, the holy of holy, holy place, and the holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, basically, God in the box. People say, the box, the cut arc, represent God. It was a place where God resided. I, I don't know how that happened. I don't get it. But God was in the box. 
or on the box or near the box or however you want to say it. Like, and I'm sure Brian has a great idea how this actually happened, but for all of us that don't really know the Bible that teach it, like God was in the box. And only the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies, one high priest, one time a year, carrying blood. And they tied a rope around his butt. And they put bells on his garments. <laughs> because if he died in there, a human couldn't go in and get him. So when the bells stopped jingling, he's like, he died, pull him out of there. And I know there's lots of other reasons why he had bells. So, I mean, this is how severe it was. Now, the, the tabernacle of Moses was called the tabernacle of Moses because Moses had an encounter with God on Mount Sinai. And God gave him all of the details of the tabernacle. Now, like I've read that book one time, the book of Leviticus, where God gives him all the details because it's boring unless you're like a contractor. <laughs> or a theologian. <laughs> but he gave him every single detail about the tabernacle, what color it should be, the sizes of all the rooms, who should build it, who was anointed to build it, like the materials, like every single, just like you would hand a contractor an architectural drawing, like this is exactly how it has to happen. And I want you to understand that this wasn't like, um, the history, this wasn't, a, uh, this wasn't a Bible history lesson. This was the Bible, right? This is like the first five books of the Bible. So when God gave the instructions to Moses for like, this is how you'll worship, it wasn't like an extra book that was written about the Bible. It was actually the Bible. So now David becomes king. And he gets this idea to build a tabernacle made out of porpoise skin. Are you getting like already there's a problem? Yeah. Out of porpoise skin, he makes this one room. Remember the tabernacle Moses has three rooms? Like, like normal humans could go to the first room. The priest could go to the second room, holy place. And only one holy, 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 holy priest could go into the, in the presence of God before the ark. So David pitches his tent and puts the tabernacle, I'm sorry, puts the ark of the covenant inside of this tent. And then he orders all the priests, all the Levitical, Levitical priests to go in and worship and make, get this, joyful sounds before the ark of the covenant. And then David goes in before the ark, and he's not even from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's not even a priest. And David assigns him for, I think, 38 years to go in before the ark of the covenant for 38 years and worship 24 hours, seven days a week, singing happy songs. Okay, follow me for a minute. There's a problem not because no one's ever done this before, but because the Bible says, don't do it that way. Right? The Bible that David has says, you will not do it this way. You will put the ark inside of this. And not only that, but there's a church down the street called the Tabernacle of Moses that's still going without the presence. <laughs> Reminds you, American church. So David goes in, and you can imagine the first priest. Like, David's like, okay, you guys got the first shift. Go on in. And I, I bet you, like, like, Joel's saying to Thomas, like, you go first, dude. Because you understand that to do what God said not to do, like, just to get the ark, just to get the ark, the box, into the, into the place where, where, the, where they put the tent, like, guys died on the way there just touching the ark. Now David's going to put it inside and have all the priests worship in the front of the ark. Like, whoa, the Bible says not to do that. 
Are you following me? This wasn't just a bad idea. This was not an extra biblical idea. This was an anti-biblical idea. And he worshiped for 38 years there, writing songs in there, songs of the Lord. The Psalms, most of them were written in the tabernacle of David. Are you following me? So now, fast forward on the other side of the cross, we have the Acts 15 council where the apostles come in to decide whether or not the Jews, I'm sorry, the Gentiles who are getting saved had to keep the laws of Moses. And so anyway, there, there's this big discussion, which we don't have time for right now. But when, when they get done talking about the testimonies, the prophecies, and, and relating the scriptures, James stands up and says, brothers, because the guys are, the, the apostles are moving towards the, the Gentiles don't have to keep these rules. And James stands up and he makes a statement. And he quotes Amos 9. It shall come about in the last days that the Lord will raise up the tabernacle of David. They will wall up its rooms. They will raise up its breaches so that all of the Gentiles or all of mankind might seek the Lord. In other words, God's idea was the tabernacle of Moses. Every detail of it. David's idea was the tabernacle of David. When God's going to rebuild a worship center... He doesn't rebuild the one that came from the law. He rebuilds the one that came from the heart of a man who loved him. And he goes, let's do that again. Are you with me? Okay, the question for us is, how did he get permission to do that? When the Bible said, don't do that. Are you with me? And, and Acts chapter 2, verse 29, uh, Peter's preaching, he writes that, he t- shares this. Brethren, may I confidently say that to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on a throne he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ which he'd suffer and so on what I'm getting at is this how did David get permission to do that book of Acts says he was a prophet and he looked ahead and he saw a people on the other side of the crucifixion who all became priests. Moses says, you shall, listen, if you keep my covenant, you keep my ways, Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy, a, a holy nation. But how I many know Peter, Peter says, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I'm saying David looked at his time on the other side of the cross when everybody would be priests. When you would, when the whole nation of people, when everybody who received Christ would be a priest. And it was for another time, if you will. It was in the land of grace. And David takes what was meant for another season and another time because he was a prophet. And he said, I'll take that. And he takes what was made for a different season. He's living under the law. But he said, I'm going to pull grace into my day because I see it's coming. And he pulled grace into his day. And God goes, I like that better than my idea. Let's do that again. (laughs) Are you with me? And you're like, okay, what's that have to do with the last days? I wonder if some people are like, well, that's for the millennium. Okay. First of all, I don't know if there's a millennium. People are like, do you believe in a millennium? I know I believe in Jesus. But if there's a millennium and all that's supposed to happen in the millennium, I see it there and I'm like, why not now? Like, like, no, I'm saying I have scripture that says in the last days, in the last days. And I choose in the last days. I choose, I have faith for peace. And I'm like, what would happen if, <laughs> I don't know if it's like this, so this is probably some sort of heresy. I bet, it, I bet it is. I bet it is. But what if there are alternative endings to the movie depending on what ending you choose for you, your life, your children, your children's children, and your children's children's children? What if you took those verses, and by the way, there are hundreds of them, that talk about the good news of the last days, and you said, I'm taking that for my kids, and I'm planning for a future and a hope. 
I want to have a hundred year vision, a thousand year vision. And people are like, well, you're supposed to prepare like Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. Yes, I'm prepared for Jesus to come back tomorrow, but I have a plan if he doesn't come back for a thousand years. I have a plan that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. I have a plan that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our God. And I have a plan that we would make disciples of nations on this side of the millennium, if there is one, and on the other side of the millennium, if there isn't. But one way or another, the point is... <laughs> And people are like, they're always trying to describe, you're eschatologist, you're a millennialist, you're a, you're a omni-millennialist, you're like, I, I don't know, I just like, I'm a guy who has hope for the future. Yeah. And I have, and I don't want my eschatology to do what it did to me. I don't want my children's children's children relegated to delus <laughs> delusional people who, are, who have no morals and no values, and they're taking over the earth because I'm supposed to exit and think we're supposed to be out of here tomorrow. Like, if I get out of here tomorrow, I'm happy. And by the way, I'm cramming for my finals anyway. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying to you, like, taking away hope for the future is actually the destruction of our planet. And I don't know about you, but I intend to leave my kids a world better off than I received it. And I can't say it's better off now than I received it. <laughs> I'm doing my best. This concept, I have till 10 afternoon, right? This concept is not new. The promise to Abraham was not that he'd be a father to a nation but that he'd be a father of nations, multiple. Not that he would be a father in nations either, but he'd be a father of nations. That he would father nations. Are you, am I making any sense? This is the promise to Abraham, the father of faith, not the father of doom. The good news, the gospel means good news. I posted this yesterday. It was kind of fun. I just like make people think. And I posted, if you don't preach Jesus saving people every time you come to the podium, people don't think you're preaching the gospel. If the gospel is just, not just like play it down, but just as in only this. If the gospel is just for the salvation of souls, then two-thirds of the Bible isn't the gospel. And I propose that the gospel is the Bible. It's good news for the individual, and it's good news for nations, and it's good news for, it's good news, no matter the situation. So when Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore make disciples of all ethnos or all nations, that was not a new concept. That was the promise to Abraham. Are you with me? Like the promise to Abraham was, you will be a father of many nations. In Romans chapter 4, speaking of Abraham and Sarah not being able to get pregnant, Paul writes, in hope against hope, he believed. Every menstrual cycle, hope against hope, he believed so that he would become the father of many nations. Here's how that verse ends. So shall his descendants be. Yes. The descendants of Abraham, as Jesus pointed out, and as Paul pointed out especially, they are not the descendants, biological descendants, but by faith, all who have faith in God are descendants of Abraham, and his descendants are what? Fathers of many nations. Yes. Are you with me? Okay. I'm the practical guy. What does that look like? L like, this is me. I'm the practical guy. Like, I love philosophy, but not if it has no flesh. I want the word to become flesh and dwell among us. I drive Bill crazy in private sessions. I'm like, what does that look like? How would we do that? Why? How about now? Why not now? Why not here? Why not us? 
So 20 years ago, we've been, I've been in Reading 24. 20 years ago, we started getting prophecies. I remember Bill and I were in this prayer meeting and this prophet guy came up to Bill and he said, God is looking for a city, Bill. This is, we were in the prayer meeting, he said this privately, Bill. God is looking for one city. One city that would be totally under the influence of the kingdom so that it could become a model that people could come and see, not a Christianized city, but a city under the influence of the kingdom. We're believers and unbelievers. Remember, God blesses the unbeliever and the believer. He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous in the new covenant. Where believers and unbelievers could see the benefit of a superior kingdom superimposing itself over an inferior kingdom. And Bill said, I believe that city is ready. He said, I believe that city is ready too. An hour later in the same prayer meeting, a prophetess came up, a woman. And she said, Bill, obviously this was not a word publicly spoken. It was in his ear. It was whispered in his ear. God told me to tell you that he's looking for one city. One city that would be a model city. A model city of a city under the influence of the king. The benefit of the influence of the kingdom on one city. That it'd be one, and it would be a model that people from all over would come to see. And then they would go back and they'd reproduce it in their city. And city after city would come under the influence of the kingdom. And they would fall like dominoes. Well, Bill came back and preached that the next week. I don't even think I heard that. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't hear it when it was spoken. And I started thinking, what does it look like for a city to be under the influence of a kingdom? Like, that's all great. It's a philosophy. But what does it practically look like? And so I went into Bill's office and said, what does that look like? Like, what does it look like for the kingdom to benefit a city in a way that believers and unbelievers benefit equally from the kingdom? And out of that conversation came the concept of tithing to our city. So we've always given away 10% of our income. So we took 10% of that 10% and we began to give it to our city. We sat with our city manager and we told him what we wanted to do. You can imagine how that conversation went. He's like, what for and why? And what is it you want? And, you know, we didn't know till four years later that he's actually a believer. He never let on that he was a believer. We explained the, the, the concept of tithe to him, thinking he didn't know the Bible. And we began to pour into our city. We took our school ministry and we developed teams to work in our city. And we, we made sure that every single person who came to school ministry actually did city service. We took, at the time, we had like 1,000 students and we grew to 2,400 students and we, we bought a million dollars worth of equipment, tractors and trailers and chainsaws and we were mentoring in schools and, we were, you know, and when we first went, we went to them and said, is there anything we can do for you? You know, it was kind of, I mean, it was, it, was, it was laughable what they gave us. Well, you can take care of the parks and sweep the streets and we're like, let's sweep streets like Solomon set tables. Let's do an ordinary thing in an extraordinary way that no one's ever seen before. And we began to sweep streets with passion, clean the park like no one's ever cleaned the park before. We hired a manager that used to work for me 15 years before, this amazing man named Keith. We hired him full time. He was a forest worker and we lured him away from his company so that he can come to work for us knowing that he was like the man who trained Solomon's workers. So passionate were our workers that we, every year, I would stand on the back of a flatbed truck with the city workers who were actually doing physical labor in the city, and I would give a charge. I would give a charge to our city workers, to our team. And I didn't know it, but four years ago, a, a bunch of the city, city people who aren't believers came to hear the charge. I don't know who invited them. They were all in suits. <laughs> I didn't see them till it was over. And I was telling our students, let's 
Let's minister to our city with excellence and passion. Let's sweep streets like Solomon's waiters waited on tables. And I just doing this whole thing was a half hour long. When I got done off the back of the flatbed truck, I started heading towards my car and the four city leaders were there. Two guys and two gals who were the heads of our city. And three of them were weeping. Not believers. And the one guy that used to be our city, our, our city mayor and also our city manager, the most influential person in our city, was one of those guys. He's a tall man, six foot four. He put his arms around me and he looks at me and he said, I've been watching them five years out my window clean the parks out my window. And today, with tears on it, today I finally understand what the heck Bethel's all about. When we, when the pandemic hit and obviously was spreading, we had a different approach than most churches. People were like, Bethel closed because they were cowards. It would have been 10 times easier to stay open than close. But we had to say, we had to ask ourselves, we spent 20 years building relationships with our city and not shepherding our city, but together shepherding our city. We spent 20 years saying to our city leaders, how can we serve you? We meet with them every week. Our teams meet every week. There's art and murals of our city leaders that our artists painted of our city leaders on city walls. Like we have served them by honoring Romans 13 civil leaders. So when the, when the virus hit, we didn't ask what's best for us. We asked what's best for us. How do we walk with our city leaders in a way that we're still building? And after the virus is passed, that they say, I love working with those people in crisis. Instead of saying, oh, those people are trying to shut us down. Those people are trying to, those people are trying to control us. Those people are, how about if we just said, we are all trying to stop a virus that's killing people. How do we best do it with the information we have? And we walk with our civil leaders through more than 20 months already of what do we do together? We're four days a week on the phone with the health department who we prayed for daily. We put their names up on our screens and we, every week we prayed for our city leaders. Like how do we build a city? Now we look back as a team, we just had a debrief the other day. We said, hey, we did this wrong, we did that wrong, we probably should have opened earlier, there was other things we could have done. Yes, but who knows that when you're in the middle of it? But my point isn't, we got it all right. My point is, is that we are trying to build a city, not just a church. We're trying to care for people who don't yet know the Lord. We're trying to build something for the next hundred years in our city. And is it popular? No. Did we get it all right? Absolutely not. Will we do it different with the information we have? Of course we would. Who wouldn't do things different after a crisis? But my point is that we are called to father nations. We're called to have a hundred year vision. I'm sorry, I'm three minutes over what you gave me. Can you stand? I want to pray for you. Yesterday I talked about knowing each other after the spirit. What if we extended that beyond the walls of our church and we began to go into our city and with people who don't yet know the Lord begin to call out the gold that's in the middle of the dirt of their life. Today I was having breakfast in the uh, hotel by myself and uh, there was a group of uh, business people talking, just a, a table, it was, they were talking loud, it was easy to hear what they were talking about. And there was a lady on the end and, and the Lord said to me, go tell her that I'm pleased with her and I love her. And then I've put a, and I have this word and I'm like, oh boy, this is not gonna be fun. <laughs> so I was gonna get up and go over there and just right before I did, she got up to get something to eat, something else to eat. So I went over and told her, hey, um, the Lord told me to tell you and I gave her this word and she just, she looked like she was, in, she was talking to an alien. She obviously was not a Christian or had never heard a prophecy before. And she goes, 
okay, thank you. Wow, okay. It's kind of fun. Lord, I pray that this room would be full of fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, would ha who have, would have a passion, not just for the soul of individuals, but for the heart of the cities. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight and foresight and spirit-led strategies, strategies <laughs> for a hundred-year vision for both our own families and for our city. In Jesus' name, thank you. Thanks for staying extra. Sorry. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.